0: Welcome to the We Are SC Podcast, Monday Morning Cornerback. This is Eric McKinney, joined by Daryl Radeau. and and Daryl, we've we've got a fun one to go over here. Uh, at least for the most part, USC beats UCLA, fifty-two to thirty-five. They bring back the victory bell. That you know, order is restored at least for a year uh, in Los Angeles. And I know you love talking about defense, but after this game, we've got to talk offense uh, off off the top. Keenan Slovis. He sets a USC single-game passing record with 515 yards. He throws for four touchdowns. And the wide receivers, for the first time in USC history, they have four wide receivers with more than 100 receiving yards in one game. Michael Pittman with 13 catches, his third game in a row with double-digit catches. 13 catches, 104 yards, and two touchdowns. Tyler Vaughn, six catches, 106 yards, and a touchdown. Ross St. Brown, eight catches, 128 yards. Drake London, eight catches, 142 yards, and a touchdown. And we even saw the the run game a bit. Stephen Carr, Vivai uh Carr had played the week before, but this was Vivai's first game back since Notre Dame. They average seven yards a carry, they go for a, about 150 yards between the two of them. It, it felt like the offense. Did a lot of stuff right and it felt like uh if they needed to they they could have gone for you know maybe 60 or 70 what did you see offensively from usc in in this game and maybe compare it to when we first started seeing this offense you know either back in in spring ball or fall camp or even in the the first maybe couple games of of the season
1: you know can honestly say that for the first time since arguably the middle prime part of Pete Carroll's run, did we see a team finish in the month of November the way that you expect or you come to expect and you've been spoiled over the years? A team that just seemed like it was reaching this fever pitch of peaking at the right time, getting guys healthy. You talked about getting Stephen Carr back uh, last week and and what it means to be able to you almost forget those big bodies those veteran leadership what it means to be able to just give the the perception of running in between the tackles but lo and behold the emergence of Keaton Slovis and what he's been able to do going 37 to 47 515 yards and it just seemed like he did it with ease for the first time all year long we seen by far, USC offensively, their most complete game. 10 points in the first quarter, and they, they just never let up. It seemed like every time they touched the ball, there was never a true threat of, of punting. You know, they they had total command. And what I love about the game plan behind Graham Harold was the body blows that they were throwing at UCLA, attacking the middle of the field. They gave them plenty to handle. And it always seems like he finds his rhythm early on in the process with Drake London and Amon Ross St. Brown. And it just kind of wears the, uh, an interior part of your defense out because now you have to account for those two guys in the slot. And just as you start to bracket those guys up, here comes a, a, for a quiet first quarter, here comes a Michael Pittman Jr. And, and what he was able to do with those 13 catches and just the command that he has on the field, his presence alone If he isn't up for the Blitnikoff, he should at least be a runner-up, if not top three candidate, because I I cannot find a finer wide receiver or a finer performance this season than what you saw with Michael Pittman Jr. And again, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the wide receiver position. But Keaton Slovis, his pocket manipulation, his ability to extend plays, he, he at times will give you the threat of running, but never once do you ever uh, mistake him for um, Dorian um, DTR, Dorian Thompson-Robinson. You never, you never suspect that he's going to beat you that way. But it's his ability to extend those plays and, and buy time so that his receivers can stretch the field. And there's not a, the secondary in the country, including Alabama and Clemson or LSU, that can go six defenders that can cover these wide receivers on a possession-by-possession possession basis. So overall, you love what you see. A little disappointed that the season just comes to an abrupt end in terms of the regular season based on how well they're playing. But it's the, you get the impression that USC is only graduating seven players, and if the nucleus of this team elects to come back, how good can this offense truly be? You still got two true freshmen, Broom McCoy, and Floyd, who hadn't even touched the field yet. And they'll replace the likes of Michael Pittman Jr. who's leaving due to graduation. But the sky is the limit on how good this program could be moving forward. But for one game in a vacuum, considering the melee that happened at the Rose Bowl a year ago, to watch USC dissect and just really have their way with UCLA, who really, literally, just always felt like a counterstep behind anything that SC was able to do? The command that they they played with, and the effectiveness of running the ball, it just gave you the impression that on a day like this, Slovis could have easily thrown for
0: uh, 600 yards. Yeah, you know, but let's talk a little bit, Michael Pittman Jr. Right now, he it felt like you know, the Bolitnikoff push came really late in the year and these last three games for him and kind of four out of the last five have been outstanding, but you look at where he ranks in USC kind of career, uh, statistics when, when it comes to receiving and, and right now, um, he, you know, 95 catches this year, that's tied with Mike Williams, Mike Williams, 2003 season, uh, At this point, I think unlikely that USC gets into that Pac-12 championship game. So you're looking at one more game uh, in the bowl game for him. He's got a a chance. Ten catches in that bowl game, which I I get seems like a a big number, but he's done ten at least ten in the last three. Ten catches gets him number three overall in USC history, Uh, single season receptions in a year. That's behind Marquise Lee and Robert Woods, who kind of were targeted so much in in that 2012 2011 season uh respectively he has two games of 13 catches there's only five wide receivers that have ever had more uh in a game and then he's got you know a chance to get up there um in the single season re- reception uh in terms of yardage he's got 1222 right now mike williams is there at number 10 with 1265. so almost guaranteed to get into that top 10 for for you, where does he rank kind of in, in USC? And and again, like you said, this is something where it kind of came on late. He didn't have that big freshman season to build off of, and he really kind of needed to put this together in one big year. I guess a couple questions for you. Where, where do you see him kind of in that whole history of USC wide receivers? And as a corner for you, mm-hmm. what kind of challenge does a guy like him present? What does he do so well that that makes him such a good wide receiver?
1: You know, when I think about just the the tradition of USC and the wide receiver position, yeah, you have the Lynn Swans, you, you know, you, you have the Earl McCullough's of the world who played light years away before the modern day ESPN era. But if you think about it just from the Carson Palmer era, on and beyond, where we we started to see USC truly recruit prolific wide receivers. And I have to throw in Keyshawn Johnson into that mix. Um, Michael Pittman, for one season, I'd have to put him in a top 12. Can't put him in a top five, because that wouldn't be fair to the guys that, that have a stronger body of work. But when you think about his ability to take over a game and dominate, the question is, how much did he truly benefit from having three other great receivers? But there were times when those other great receivers got kind of lost in the shuffle, and Michael Pittman Jr. just really kind of stood out and really kind of salvaged games for USC. So his when I think about his big body, I put him well above Patrick Turner, who disappeared. But I can't put him in front of Dwayne Jarrett or Mike, Mike Williams, or Keyshawn Johnson, and then when you, when you think about some of the other guys like Woody uh, that, that, that you talked about, and Marquise Lee, just they were transcendent talents, different body frames, but he's somewhat of a hybrid, because Michael Pittman Jr. can play all the positions, you can put him in the slot, he has great feet in and out of his breaks, doesn't just settle there, he comes back to the football. And when you talk about a a player of his size of what a true six five um wide frame for a guy my size he is the most difficult type of wide receiver to cover because he has a vertical radius that can go up and get the ball. But what I talked about when he runs those intermediate routes, whether it's a crossing route or just a curl or a a comeback, he doesn't sit there and wait for the ball, which would give a small guy like me an an ability to try to undercut and come underneath him. Instead, he drives downhill. So he may take a, a, a route 15 yards, but come back down to 10 yards. And when you talk about that, his ability to now extend those long arms, it's like an eclipse for me. If I'm covering him, his massive body shadows, puts himself in between the, foot, uh, the quarterback and me as the defender, and it's his big target. Very, very difficult and very challenging because now if you talk about trying to put a safety on him, the safety is not fast enough. His footwork may not be good enough. Um, there's very few uh, safeties that can actually cover a guy of his size. And when you talk about corners, on average, corners average from now the height of 5'11", to 6'1", just big body, and he has the ability to kind of post you up like a small forward. So when, when you just take all of that into context and what he has done this season, he is by far one of the most dynamic wide receivers and most reliable and uh, um, dependable wide receivers that USC has. And when you put that in the context of who he's playing next to, Amon Ross St. Brown, uh, the, the emergence of Drake London, but Tyler Vaughn on the opposite side, he is a star amongst stars. He still shines bright, and that's why you know his game will resonate in the NFL when he's playing um, alongside other great talents. Because his talent, his worth ethic does transcend. And the way that he's kind of evolved as a player reminds me of, of um, Clay Matthews. When Clay Matthews came in, made his impact for USC under the Pete Carroll era on special teams. Early on in Michael Pittman's career, he made his contributions on special teams and then just kind of morphed and evolved into the player that he has become. So that to me would be the comparison. While other receivers like a Marquise Lee was dynamic in college, you still get the sense that Michael Pittman's best years are still ahead of him. And I probably can compare him a little bit closer to uh, Michael Floyd than anybody else in terms of his, his range and his body because it will translate to the NFL and his success and longevity. This guy can have a 10 to 15 year career just because of all the intangibles that he brings to a team.
0: Yeah. And I think once you start looking at his kind of highlight reel, all, all the the, uh, you know, going up over double coverage and pulling balls away from guys and some of the, um, you know, the, the tough plays that he makes, I, I think you could put kind of a a highlight reel together uh, for him where as many of the highlights are kind of running through defenders with the ball in his hands, than they are making catches, and he has some phenomenal catches. I think he's a guy that you USC fans might appreciate more next year, you know, than, than during his career here. He did a a whole lot, and uh, it does feel like you said, just kind of like, and now it's over, you know, and, and you don't yeah. really get to to enjoy that year where he puts together a year like this and then you have him coming back for another year. Like it, it feels like you've got with a lot of the other uh, re- recent wide receivers that you mentioned, but we're going to stay on offense for a little bit and talk about another guy maybe where he kind of falls. And he's a guy with a lot of time left Keaton Slovis. He has a chance to go uh, pretty high up in that single season uh, passing yard uh, record for USC. And he has not played in every game this year. This is a guy who has a chance to, and again, you're you're talking about guys who played for you know three, four years when you're looking at the top of the the uh, quarterback records for USC. Keaton Slovis kind of has that shot to get up there uh, and and pretty far up there when it comes to USC. What have you seen from him this year? how he has developed because, and we mentioned it right after the UCLA game, he hit the ground running this year. And so, so it's not like he had a bunch of bad games in a row, then got better and better. His, his first game was phenomenal. There were some true freshman hiccups throughout. What do you like about him? Where do you see him kind of going forward? And, and what was his progression throughout the year for you?
1: It's interesting because in that first game, when JT Daniels goes down. You can make the argument that for that first half, before he went down, he was having as good of a game as he had had um, in his young career, meaning JT Daniels. So I remember watching the body language of Keaton Slovis, and his confidence didn't waver. He didn't have the, uh uh-oh, I'm not prepared look in his face. And and that was the same look that I had been seeing alongside you as we had been going to practice, you more practices than I, but the times that we watched him, whether it was in scrimmages, whether it was in practices, uh, when he's competing with three other quarterbacks and not really sure where he would fall on the depth chart, finding his way into USC when he wasn't heavily being recruited, okay, but it was his preparation. The confidence that, that I saw in that first game against Fresno State, I remember a, after he lit it up and we're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Or at least that was what I felt because there was nothing in practice that would give you the impression that he can make these type of throws and he can command the attention of, of uh, 18 to 22-year-olds the way that he did. He didn't have the star power of JT Daniels coming in, where you know it just commanded that type of attention and attraction. But the one thing I will say about him is the conviction by which he plays with his understanding of what his strengths are and his ability to get the most out of his talent. Okay. He I'm just amazed by how he's not the fastest, not, not the strongest arm, but yet is very accurate very quick on his feet and sits in the pocket when most freshmen will retreat and, and forfeit half the field. He doesn't, he stays in the middle of the, uh, of the, um, of the, of the pocket and at times enters into it and then he escapes. But what he's really doing is he has a great, he does such a great job of targeting away from the defender understanding where the windows are, and that goes back to his preparation. Because of his time, perhaps it was with Kurt Warner, you got to give a lot of credit to that, and just kind of like the back and forth going philosophically about how to play the uh, the quarterback position with perhaps inferior talent that he had played with in, in high school, going what, having only won three games, I think they went like three and eight his senior year, and now you play with Transcendent talents at the wide receiver position, like a guy like Pittman, and, and recognizing that radius early on in his career. I mean, early on in the season, I thought that there were times where he pressed because he was he had so many gifted wide receivers. I thought he anticipated too much. He threw to areas as opposed to throwing guys open. There's a big difference between throwing in an area and throwing guys open. When you throw in an area, it's a 50-50 ball. The defense, if you're not paying attention. Can undercut those routes, and that's what we saw when teams were, were running three down linemen and dropping eight in the coverage. But when he learned to throw guys open, that means that a defender can be on you and he throws it to that back shoulder, or the defender can be on your upfield show, I mean, um, underneath you in a trail position, and you throw it right past the defender's ear hole. We saw a lot of that and a lot of trust and confidence that his receivers will come down with the ball. But when you talk about just how uh, when a quarterback throws three interceptions, sometimes they can get shell-shocked and you see it in their body language. But I never got that sense with him. He understood what the mistakes that were being made early in the season. And it seemed like he came back with a newfound confidence. And maybe that confidence clicked for him against Notre Dame in that second half when he gave USC a fighting chance to come back, albeit a loss. But thereafter, you can make the argument that he's one of the hottest quarterbacks in all of college football.
0: And and it gives USC a a big boost going in next year. I don't think there are any questions, no matter what happens with the coach, I don't think there are any questions that USC's offense should come back next year looking like probably the best offense in the entire uh, conference, certainly, should maybe be one of the best offenses in the country. And, and again, there there are some questions about uh, what scheme are they going to run and, and all of that, if there are uh, changes made, but you look at who you lose and, and it's Michael Pittman, uh, certainly one of the wide receivers. And then Drew Richmond, uh, the the right tackle, you've got to figure out sort of what happens on the line. Obviously there are some juniors uh, who could take a look. Um, Austin Jackson, the left tackle, Tyler Vaughns, uh, the wide receiver, but, a huge bulk of uh, production and experience coming back. And really it's the same for the defense too. And and let's jump in. We'll we'll change gears here and go defense against UCLA. This this was not a great UCLA offense. And and they put up a ton of yards against USC. They had a string of, of three straight drives over, I think it was 73, 74, and 75 yards that they went to score touchdowns against USC. And I understand the the players, the coaches, they all said Joshua Kelly was not going to get to 1,000 yards rushing against us. Uh, he, he needed 61. They held him to 45. They did a great job there. That, to me, feels a little bit like you're admitting we can't do both things. We can't, we can't take yeah. away the run and the pass. Uh, against a quarterback who is not one of the better passers uh, in the Pac-12, certainly one of the better athletes at quarterback, and he can scramble and he can really hurt you there. And he had a few plays like that. But what are the issues facing this USC defense again? When you kind of sell out to stop a running back and you succeed there, but you it, it feels like you just didn't have enough to contain the passing game as well. And, and that's kind of an issue that we've seen crop up quite a bit, in, you know, in, in very recent history with USC's defense.
1: And it truly is unfair. And here is why. Okay. By virtue of USC scheme, there are limitations within the scheme. When you feature three down linemen, you know, and, and, and you run kind of this hybrid defense where you have five defenders or five uh, defensive backs with Greg Johnson being the permanent nickel replacing what, what under normal circumstances, would be your strong side linebacker. So now you're playing in the box with a Mike linebacker and John Houston, bless his heart, for the season that he put up. Uh, I think he might have eclipsed or got close to eclipsing uh, 100 tackles Mm -hmm. from the Mike linebacker position. But if his career is going to extend, that is the last game. This bowl game will be the last game that he'll ever play Mike linebacker. Um, in a normal situation because he is truly a weak side linebacker or like a third down specialist. Okay. So with that being said and all of the changes and variations with um, Kanai Mauga or um, EA during the times that he was in, it just felt like a rotation next to, to him. But with that being said, USC's defensively went into this game and they've been doing this over the last few weeks saying, look, we're not going to concentrate on trying to stop everything, because when we try to stop everything, we stop nothing. But what we are going to do is we're going to have a, a singular focus and take away something, and that something was Joshua Kelly, okay? And I, I heard like a post um, comments from Chip Kelly that Chip Kelly was intending on attacking the, the, uh, the corners in the nickel position, much like last year. Try to see how smart USC is. Get the get the corners in the set uh, in the nickel position involved in the running game. So what did USC do in the, in a game like this? They went a lot heavier on man-to-man coverage. As a result, it freed up Talanalo Hufunga and Isaiah Palomoa. by freeing them up as safeties, allowing them to hover around the line of scrimmage or come in with cleanup duty. Hufunga had 18 tackles, 11 unassisted. Seven, seven assisted. First time since the guy that I play with, Troy Polamalu, have you seen a safety that active? So USC was content on allowing for Dorian Thompson Robinson, D.T.R., to have to beat him in the air, and it showed. Forty-four attempts, 20, he goes twenty-six of forty-four, three hundred sixty-seven yards, three touchdowns and an interception. But at times, those yards felt like empty calories because UCLA didn't have that 100-yard rusher, and although Kelly had 15 attempts, averaging three yards, you just never really felt like he got going. There were times where he had some spurts, but there was a USC defender there to slow down the run after, uh, the, um, the yards after contact, and this has to be the formula because, again, I mentioned USC is very limited in their game plan and their scheme. Uh, And that's another question for perhaps later on in this segment. But for what you saw, the game plan at USC went in and executed to the best of their ability. When you have an offense putting up as many points as that, perhaps that uh, contributed to UCLA kind of really kind of trying to get into a shootout with SC. But if you were going to take away something, a guy who beat you up last year for 289 yards and you hold him to 45 yards and and where the quarterback had the most yardage with 16 attempts for 64, you just get the sense that USC accomplished what they intended on accomplishing and were willing to allow for DTR, uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson, to beat them in the air. And he just didn't have enough on this day although when you look at his stats he, he had a pretty decent game he just went up against a quarterback that was as hot as they come
0: so let let's take a bigger picture did did USC defensively this year do what they needed to do what what what's your overall take on this USC defense where they struggled where they had success maybe how it was different uh either from last year into this year or even how it changed Throughout this season, what's kind of your overall take on what USC was able to do defensively in 2019?
1: There was much talk about coming into this football season that USC was going to simplify things from a conceptual standpoint and just really allow their playmakers to make plays. But USC and whether or not they were going to be able to accomplish that task, really, they were hindered from day one. When you had Jordan Iaseca, who was penciled in as the starting Mike linebacker, who was going to take over for Cam Smith uh, from last year, who does such a great job of getting guys lined up, and you have to rely upon John Houston playing, what I believe, out of position. You know, just just the the injuries alone, whether it was at the linebacker position, in and out, not getting effective pass rushes. Uh, uh, consistently, relying heavily on Drake Jackson, um, a true freshman who was a star in the making, and then just the rotation in the secondary, the inconsistency uh, at the safety position, lack of continuity. Despite all of that, I think that uh, based on what they were dealt with, that they played up to expectation. But their expectations could have been greater. This could have been a defense that could have been in the top twenty in the country uh, with, with takeaways and and just getting off the field um, overall. Um, Given you know a defensive giving up yards, but instead we saw a defense that at times struggled to take away anything, and um, you know and really struggled to get off the field on third downs. From an athletic standpoint. There were improvements in the secondary. We didn't hear nearly the amount of pass interferences that we saw, uh, you know, really plague this team for the greater part of three years. We also didn't see a lot of blown coverages to the point where there were just guys running free. We saw a team that improved on a quarter-by-quarter basis, but because they were so young, those growing pains, they're going to benefit from the experience gained moving forward. But there were times where this defense needed to take over games, and they just didn't have enough to do so simply because the guys that they were going to depend upon, the Christian Rectors, the Jordan Iosefas, and a, a quartet of, of, of rotational um, secondary players were in and out of the lineup in and out of the lineup at crucial times when they needed to rely upon them. But what happens when guys go out, you start getting more experience. And with all that's coming back, there's a lot of optimism with how good this defense can be, but let's not, let's not get sucked into this vortex of thinking that just by, by circumstance, they are going to improve and get better. Because if you go back and you look statistically, Uh, this Clancy defense scheme does not generate a lot of pressure and does not generate a lot of turnovers. So the scheme conceptually has to change the same type of wholesale changes that we saw offensively, which turned USC offense into a juggernaut. You think that if perhaps Clay Helton either is retained or a new coach comes in, how this, the, the quality of experience returning on the defensive side can benefit from a new scheme and concept will help them, but overall, Eric, from what I saw, I saw a team that perhaps overachieved based on the healthy bodies that they had, but really was a disappointment in the sense that you had the the continuity of a, a defensive coordinator returning, and you didn't squeeze enough juice and get enough pulp out of this uh, out of the fruit of this of this team, and as a result of that, I just think that. They did just enough, but didn't do enough to make to turn this team into a top ten contender.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a one one of the even more of a guarantee, I guess, than making a change at, at head coach is boy, would I be surprised if the defensive staff looked completely the same next season. Uh, and that's something where you know you look at the turnover numbers, what they were able to generate this year compared to last year, and and last year you finished with four interceptions. They had more than that this year, but you look at what Oregon does, kind of on that side of the ball, and and the turnovers that they're able to force, and the players that they have up there, that they're not you know demonstrably better than the, the players that USC has. So it feels like there just needs to be some kind of jolt to that defense and and i i completely understand the idea where when you're not have when you're not able to throw the same lineup out there week to week it it it's hard it's tough to kind of get that communication down with so many players it's also college football and it's a guarantee that you're not going to have the same guys out there week to week year to year so so it becomes something where i understand you know, the coming into the season, it was that we're going to simplify everything. We're going to, you know, let them play. We're going to do all this. But then, when there were poor performances, a lot of the times it was the explanation was, you know, when when you don't play together, it's difficult, and uh, you know, there there can be lack of communication. Uh-huh. Again, I understand it's just, it's hard to just hear yeah. those things. Do you, you know, it, I mean? it truly is. Eric. But let me let me just it's illustrate
1: this for you, okay? When 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 I'm telling you that there needs to be a change from a conceptual standpoint, I can illustrate several plays. UCLA goes into these bunch sets like every other team does throughout the Pac-12 to truly, to truly see and test how smart USC is. But just based on the concept and the alignment of where the safety is in the middle of the field, when, the, when, when teams go this bunch set, they go first out, first up, first in. The corners are too close to the formation. They need to be seven yards off the ball, two yards wide. The interior nickel or interior uh, defender needs to be five yards off the ball, one yard outside leverage and anticipate the furthest guy um, in that bunch set to come at them. And then maybe the the middle defender needs to either be on the line of scrimmage or they need to be running some type of combo routes. Setting that aside, in every great defense, there is a philosophy within that defense where whether it's the three technique on the defensive line or it's a linebacker or a safety, you know, in a certain defenses, those defenses are designed to protect the deep ball, but more importantly, showcase and feature great talent and put them in positions where they can create havoc and pressure. This defense does not do that. It is not designed to feature the three technique, create the pressure where an offensive line has to command so much attention to that one guy where it frees up the backside. Instead, there are too many times where you have six guys hovering over the line of scrimmage where it creates this void in the middle of the field that teams target and attack far too often. So there's not enough texture and layers to this defense that would cause a quarterback to have to pump the ball twice to make sure that he's seeing the field correctly. That's why I think there needs to be a change in philosophy because players identify with schemes. So when you miss a player, you plug into that scheme and you know what the expectation is. But because the expectation is, doesn't appear to be clearly defined, you get guys guessing or assuming what their role should be and having to rely on hero ball or their just true athleticism. Because um, basic football is man coverage. To play great football, you need to be able to go from man coverage to zone seamlessly and be able to confuse defenses without putting yourself out of position. And since we don't see that, Eric, that is why I think it's time for change. It's time for change because you need to be able to get the most out of the talent that you now have on the defensive side of the ball.
0: Yeah. And, and what's coming back defensively, or again, what, what's scheduled to come back uh, defensively, maybe, maybe more impressive than the offensive side of the ball. You, you know, you're going to lose John Houston from the middle and you're going to lose Christian Rector, the, the defensive end, but, Jordan Iosefa is, is going to use his redshirt year this year, so you're going to get him back. And it almost is like you you know you, you plug him in, and it almost works out better for the USC defense where you don't have to rotate Iosefa and Houston this year. And now you get kind of a, a free year of Jordan Iosefa in, in the middle next year, a guy who, can, who knows how to run a defense. And again, if it, is, if it winds up being a different defense, a guy you figure is going to be able to learn it pretty quickly and run that. And then you you also hope that you get Solomon Tulio-Pupu back in that linebacker rotation and maybe a a fully healthy year from EA. Missing those three guys for, you know, you're missing all three of them at once for chunks of this year. You're missing two of them for the entire year. That's a a lot of potential talent and plays being made at linebacker. That you just didn't have this year, and I think the defensive secondary getting that year out of them—that that was the big question mark for me, and I, I think for a lot of people coming into this season. Obviously, you had you know a, a ton of new stuff going on on the offense side of the ball, but how those inexperienced guys yep. in that defensive secondary would play—that there were plays against UCLA. You mentioned it, they, they ran a couple plays where. You know, Kyle Phillips had, I think it went, ended up going for 38 yards where he's standing on the sideline and nobody is within 20 yards of him. Right. But those plays were few and far between. And you, I, I can't really come up off the top of my head with a bunch of like silly kind of pass interference calls where guys are just flailing down the field like we'd seen, you know, over the past couple of years before that. So I feel like ultimately, and, and I'm going to let you go into this a, a little bit deeper, but if we're just looking at the defensive backs, and that's that that kind of cornerback trio—Elijah Griffin, uh, Chris Steele, Isaac Taylor, Stewart—and then at safety with Isaiah Polmao and and uh, Talanoa Hufanga—and even we saw guys, you know, Greg Johnson and, and Chase Williams kind of man that nickel position. You got a couple, uh, three, I guess, true freshmen that I I feel like we saw enough from to think there's something there down the line. And, and Max Williams, a guy who probably ends up playing nickel but could play uh, outside corner two. Uh, and then uh, Kalana McCalla and, um, um, and Dorian Hewitt. We saw, we saw Hewitt. some flashes yeah. from him too. I, I, think you've, I, I think you've got some stuff to build on there in that secondary. What do you see overall from that group?
1: I think another year under a secondary coach, Greg Burns, who has proven, you know, uh, he's a journeyman. uh, Don't get me wrong, but he's proven that he can adjust and adapt to any schemes. But the, the way that the, that he was able to get so much out of Greg Johnson, a guy that you were ready to write off because he just seemed like he lost his confidence last year, whether it was dealing with injury or just the inconsistency, not being able to be, Um, relied upon to give you serviceable minutes. Lo and behold, he fills in seamlessly at that slot position, took him a few games to kind of get his rhythm and bearing. But the production that you get from him from that that nickel position gave you a lot of hope. Now you replace him with arguably a, a player that is most suited to play the position in Max Williams. I just love his upside potential his ability to play in space at 5'9", 180 pounds out of uh, out of Carson or out of Sarah, um, give me the impression that the secondary is going to be fine. But the depth that, that they're now starting to gain with Isaac Taylor Stewart rotating in with Chris Steele, and then you talked about um, Dorian Hewitt backing up Elijah Griffin. Now you talk about going across the board for quality corners, with size, range, and speed and athleticism that can play man coverage, learning to be better at recognition out of zone coverage, but have better hands than maybe giving credit for. And and that's why I think with pressure up front, you can see something special brewing here because from a secondary standpoint, if you keep those two safeties who need to get a little bit stronger, a little bit more durable, go into some more preventative measures to strengthen those, um, those ligaments that those soft tissue issues uh, and shoulder injuries that, that have plagued them. You can keep the nucleus of this group together. You can see something truly special because what comes out of that is that chemistry continuity develops trust. And when you have trust there, like I had with Troy Palomalu and Kevin Arbett opposite of me, or Chris Richard, and you can turn to them and you're all seeing the field the same way, you can do some very special things uh, from that secondary standpoint. So I do think that if you keep the nucleus of that group together, another year learning that technique, getting better at it, you'll start to see first, second, third rounders coming out of that secondary because the way that they're being taught on how to play the position does translate to the way that the NFL is teaching that Pete Carroll concept, kick-step, pure-step mentality, whether it's the Cleveland Browns, it's Jacksonville Jaguars, it's um, the uh, Atlanta Falcons, the New England Patriots, Seattle Seahawks, the 49ers, they are all running this kick-step, pure-step. So you know that with a guy like Isaac Taylor Stewart, He's only going to get better as he sees more ball and more football action. And now you got a great rep in depth with Chris Steele, who arguably was a top three recruit at his position. I just love what you have coming back there because that's going to allow them to match up against six, three to six, five wide receivers and hold their own moving forward.
0: All right. So we've mentioned what's coming back a couple times. Let's get into what may not be coming back or or may be coming back. Uh, the the head coach right now at, at USC, Clay Helton, and and outside, you know, a little bit different than just kind of speculating on will he come back or, or won't he come back. Can you put yourself uh, in the head of some of these players right now? What's your take? Do you do you feel like the the players in this program? need a change, would that, would that benefit them? Or would that be kind of a, another thing to deal with and, and cause kind of more issues and, and chaos? Can, can you put your, your mindset kind of in that situation, what they're going through right now?
1: Absolutely. I go back to 1999, 2000, the year that while we all whisper um, our disdain for Paul Hackett and the lack of leadership we also didn't realize as sophomore freshmen and sophomores that when he goes, there could be a shakeup that impacts my relationship with my position coach. And if you're someone like Keaton Slovis, who or JT Daniels, while he remained, both of them remain in this program, the affection that you're you're gaining in the relationship you're building with a guy like Graham Harrell, you risk the chance of Clay Helton getting fired. And now the chemistry and continuity you're building with your position coach may have only been a year long experience versus having that off season recognition and being able to build off of some of that experience. So for as a player, Eric, familiarity breeds content. You become comfortable and enamored hearing that voice, understanding that expectation. Where the uncertainty uncertainty lies is how does New athletic director, Mike Boone, who's hearing the echoes from the alumni, from the board of director, or the board of trustees that are all in his ear and everybody has a different perspective. How comfortable are you in your own skin as the new athletic director to make the popular choice and get rid of Clay Helton? Or to do the right thing, which is to truly try to evaluate this program from the inside out. And make whole um holistic and systemic changes that you believe are gonna be in the best uh in the in the best um what is best for this program moving forward, not just today, but moving forward for the next 10 years. So as a player, when you're contemplating coming back and you're contemplating your decision on whether or not as an underclassman you should declare for the NFL, put your name in a transfer portal. All of that is going to hinge largely upon what happens over the next two weeks. Does Clay Helton get the opportunity to sit down and, and really kind of explain why he believes that this program is trending in the right direction or does a wholesale change be made? And if it is, does Clay Helton get fired without the announcement of a new head coach? So there's a number of different factors that, that um, that go into a decision on whether or not, as a player like a Tyler Vaughn, do you perhaps put your name in the NFL and maybe don't get drafted as high as you could if you come back another year in this prolific offense with the quarterback that you know um, will give you an opportunity to showcase your skills and you're going to be on a higher stage because of the type of attention that the offense will will command coming back. So uh, uh, just there's so many questions to be answered. In the uncertainty of this program, you, you owe it to the players to make a fast decision and you owe it to everybody so that they understand how to make their choices. The later this thing lingers on into the next weeks to come, the harder of chances for these players who are uh, draft eligible to make the decisions that they need to make.
0: Yeah, it, it certainly feels like at this point, at least, uh, the the game plan seems to be to hold out, see what happens with that Utah-Colorado game on Saturday, and then if USC is not in that Pac-12 championship game, my, the the assumption at this point sure feels like we'll hear pretty quickly. And then, like you said, it'll be interesting to see how players – react to that does a change make them more or less likely to stick around the transfer portal has kind of thrown everything up in the air in terms of how easy it is for guys to move around Uh, and so depending on how that goes I, I think it might even be tough to say if guys are are more likely to stay or go depending on on either situation that unfolds but that That's kind of the, the big question left. I, I think USC has found some answers here at the end yes. of the year, certainly offensively and, and with some of the guys, like we mentioned, who are coming back. We'll see what ends up happening uh, with the bowl game, the, the Holiday right. Bowl in, in San Diego, the Alamo Bowl out there in Texas and, and San Antonio both on the table at this point. It feels like depending on whether – Utah can win out and, and eventually grab right. uh, one of those four playoff spots. So again, USC is going to get they're going to get a bowl game against a really interesting team. A lot of these players, whether the coaching staff is, is still there or or whether it's right. uh, so you know somebody else <laughs> it, coming in, however that shakes out. Yeah. E, I, you're, look, you're look
1: I, I, I want to go on the record team. on saying this. Okay, I think that Clay Helton should return. With what yeah. I saw offensively. But if he is going to return, he is going to have to make some of the toughest decisions he's ever had to make, in my opinion, in order for him to come back as that de facto CEO. You know what the offense looks like. Another year under Graham Harrell, you feel good about that. But you got to change it up. You got to make some changes on the defensive side and either commit Baxter to only being the special teams coordinator or go in a different direction. But Clancy has to go. If you want to give your team an opportunity to be as successful as it can, you need new fresh perspective on the defensive side of the ball, very similar to what you were able to offer the offense. So you're doing your team a disservice and you're you're being loyal. Loyalty will get you fired every time. If you're not constantly questioning yourself, are we giving our team the best opportunity to be successful and do I have the right leadership in place? If clay makes those moves before Boone makes his choice, that will let me know that clay is doing everything to fight to, to remain at USC. But if he goes down with the ship because he doesn't want to fire his friends, then he needs to go. But right now I would advocate for him to return. If he's willing to make those tough decisions.
0: See, my, my, I guess I, I guess it's an argument with that. I, I guess my point that I would make for that is at this point now in back-to-back seasons, if that's kind of the directive toward him, you, you need to get a, a new defensive coordinator, a new special teams coordinator, you've let him kind of steer the ship into an offense, a defense, and a special teams coordinator. And now in back-to-back years, you've told him all of those decisions were wrong. Your your three huge decisions in the three aspects of the game, were, <laughs> they ended up being the wrong way to go. And then he stood there in spring ball and said, it's on me. Turnovers, penalties, it's on me. You are down there in the bottom 10, 12, 15 teams, whatever it is. I, yeah. I, I think 115 uh, in, in turnover margins, certainly down there, the same thing in, in penalty yards per game, I think 125 maybe in, in penalty yards per game. That's tough. It's tough for me to say you've got everything going in the right direction when every single year it seems like at the end of the year he well, has to make some massive change to try to get things going back in the right but, direction. Yeah, but that, that's, so that's why, why, I why I go I back to this. And if there's a change. And,
1: and I, I would completely support the change. But if you're asking me, how I truly feel and what I think I do believe that if Clay is willing to be man enough to make the decision before he is instructed to make the decision, then that tells me he's learned enough to trust that if I go outside of my circle, positive results are possible. Sometimes we become so comfortable with who we know that we're willing to live with. the. the there's a term, it's better the dance with the devil, you know, than the one you don't know. And in, and in this case, there may be an insecurity and I'm not suggesting he's an insecure person, but there may be an insecurity of the unknown factor and knowing what the results he can get out of um uh, that, that he's going to experience from Clancy because of when he went away from Clancy and he had Justin Wilcox, that didn't work out so well for him. But, there's been more sample sizes of John Baxter having success as just the coordinator of special teams than him being diluted and not getting any production out of the tight ends. So I think that there's argument where you probably can bring back Baxter, but if you run with the notion that in order for us to get better, we need to make changes on the defensive side, I think that that's a selling point. But again, if he has to wait for Boone to tell him to do something like that, then he's not the right guy because that means you don't have a backbone to make your own choices and you truly don't understand how to evaluate your program and that's much of what we've interpreted or have seen over the years a coach that that hasn't been proactive and that has only been reactionary to try to salvage his job so yeah the, the argument can be made either way but i think that if he's assertive eric that's where i want to be clear if he's assertive and he fires before he is told to fire you got
0: my support all right i i think that's understandable i certainly hear what you're saying there um so so we'll see what happens the the next week gonna be very interesting and then we're leading right into that early signing period there in mid-december and i think that's going to be a another statement about kind of where things are right now with this program again if clay helton is is allowed to continue and he's brought back uh We'll see how how that works. Um, But for now, in the immediate kind of right now, certainly that win over UCLA, one that will be celebrated for a bit. It's it's tough that kind of there is this cloud over the program because it did feel like that win was a little bit muted. But, boy, throwing 52 points uh, against the Bruins, seeing that single-season passing record for Keaton Slovis – feels like the future can still be bright no matter how you look at it uh, for for USC right now with that offense clicking the way it's clicking. So we'll see uh, what ends up happening with a bowl game for USC, where they end up going, who they end up playing. But for now, that that's our look at USC taking down UCLA, and, and then a few other things that, that we looked at as well. But for Daryl Rideau, this is Eric McKinney. Thanks for listening to the We RSC podcast, Monday Morning Cornerback.